chest blistered, knees bloody Glad my mama took a knee for me Seven on the back, 24-7 Seven days a week for me I got a cousin doing 30 Curry with the jelly I avoid the plot, but damn it, he worry They say the men in our family are cursed Either Angela, they Uber, they hearse I'm not exempt and I know that for certain I'm not angelic or perfect or worse I'm losing people I love and it hurts I'm always at funerals, always at church Yeah, learned a little what faith is Met a couple people famous Added O's in my bang, yeah Just about the same J's, yeah So motherfucking look back to block channel we're back for episode 39 uh very great to be back here again this week uh we have some interesting change-ups for you uh in the lineup uh and not for our guests um but for our hosts uh, we have a surprise uh guest co-host who will hopefully if she likes it uh continue to come back and assist us uh further going forward into the future um but more on her in a moment um but of course uh, first and foremost, I'm joined by my very loyal co-host uh, and really good friend, uh, Demetric Ferguson. Uh, Demetric, you want to introduce yourself to the audience real quick? Yeah, uh, if you don't know me, hardest working podcaster in crypto. I'm on five podcasts. I counted it the other night. I surprised myself. <laughs> Glad to be back on Block Channel again. It's been a little while. Thanks, Demetric. And as I stated, we've got a surprise co-host today. Um, Someone I'm really excited to have on the show. Uh, her name is Erica Amatori uh, from thebitdaily.com, which is a really awesome newsletter and kind of informational resource hub uh, for, for cryptocurrencies. And if you haven't checked it out, you definitely should check out thebitdaily.com. Uh, I'm subscribed to her newsletter myself personally, and I think you should be too. So you'll see a lot more about her going forward into the future if I can say anything about it. Um, so, uh, Erica, can you just go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah. Hello, Block Channel listeners. This is Erica, co-hosting for the first time on Block Channel. Very excited, especially um, with a guest that I know very well. Perfect. Thank you very much. Excellent introduction. And uh, as Erica said, uh, she is the guest we she knows very well. We don't yet, but we want to. We're going to get to know her together alongside you guys. Um, so our guest for this week is Lisa Cuesta from NextGen Ventures. I believe I'm correct there. Um, so uh, without any further ado, uh, Lisa, uh, can you just go ahead and bless the audience with uh, a backgrounder on yourself? Tell us a little bit about, or a lot of it, about your background as far as like your education, um, occupationally, where you, you, you came from, and how you ended up um, here on this crypto podcast talking about crypto today. Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Lisa Cuesta, and I am a principal on the investment team at NextGen Venture Partners based in New York. Before coming to New York, I was actually based in Washington, D.C., which is where two of our partners are. And NextGen, for those that don't know, is an early stage venture capital firm investing in seed and Series A tech companies across the country. So we launched our fund in 2016 and have since invested in 24 companies. Uh, across industries, so fintech, healthcare, e-commerce, consumer, and software as a service, or SaaS. And my background personally, so I went to, just going back a little bit to educational background, studied finance and political science at UPenn in Philadelphia, and did a couple of investment banking internships. After school, decided to go down to Washington, D.C. and work in government consulting, which is where I actually first learned about Bitcoin. And that was back in 2010 uh, when it was being used for different 
supporting different online projects, I'll say. Um, and since then, have uh, immersed myself in tech, did a stint at Google, working on the strategy team for a startup within Google, and then worked on a product role for Google Play. I attended Harvard Business School and graduated in 2016, and that's when I joined NextGen, uh, like I said, based in DC. And I think what really piqued my interest in this space was just seeing over the past year and a half how the the community and the ecosystem has really grown significantly. And I joke around when I go to crypto conferences that <laughs> I'm watching my industry get disrupted, and that's what got my it got me interested in this space because I think in a lot of ways the fundraising mechanisms for crypto projects have uh, circumvented venture capital, but not only circumvented it, it's actually really uh, kind of reinventing it in a lot of ways because you're seeing these technical teams raising substantial capital without having to go through traditional traditional funding sources and then actually getting to fund projects themselves. And we can talk about that through the podcast, but I've met um, investment teams from different projects that now are thinking through, okay, we've raised this capital and we want to start supporting our ecosystem and investing in developers and projects ourselves. And so I think it's a really interesting time to be, be a VC and it's a really interesting time to watch the early stage venture and funding ecosystem um, evolving. So excited to talk more about that today. Excellent. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, wow, back in 2010, you said, okay, that makes you more of an OG than even Dimitrik and myself. So congratulations on <laughs> yeah. that. I appreciate much respect. Um, you've been hustling a lot over the past few <laughs> years, so a lot of a lot of respect from us. Um, so I guess to I guess to lead into the next um, part of the conversation, let's get more into the nitty gritty into like kind of what your main focus is in here now and your involvement in the crypto. Um, Erica or Dimitri, do one of you guys want to take it away? Yeah, uh, I actually have a question right off the bat to dive into. It is you mentioned in your introduction there. Um, that you you joke around that you're excited about industry that's disrupting your industry but like how how uniquely did it is it kind of changing the game mm -hmm. so i think that we are seeing projects be able to raise without having to go through traditional venture and what that means is if you think about early stage funding, entrepreneurs will know that part of the process is not only coming up with the idea, starting to recruit your team, but it's also selling investors on your idea and getting them to give you with that to provide that early stage capital that will allow you to hire your team, get an office space, get the basic resources that you need to actually get your project off the ground. And so what that entails is going to meet with individual investors and getting them to hopefully commit capital, whether it's um, through uh, convertible debt, a convertible note, or through equity. Um, and I think what you're seeing in the past, especially in the past year and a half, as I mentioned before, was a lot of these projects are actually circumventing venture capital, meaning they're not going to individual investors and raising um, from traditional VCs that would typically fund early stage companies. And instead, they're going to a global audience. They're going to people that potentially could be users, developers, um, they could be investors, and they don't actually have to go and meet them in person in the same way that entrepreneurs would traditionally. Yeah. So I think um, what you're seeing is that the investor base has become much broader. So you're getting people from all around the world participating in these early stage projects. And then you're also seeing that um, these these projects, after they raise capital, especially some of the larger ones, are then 
using this funding that they've received and investing in projects themselves. So um, you see projects like like EOS and Ripple, they have substantial kind of funds that they now can deploy. Ecosystem funds, quote unquote. Yes, yes, exactly. And so it's not just that they are circumventing venture capital, meaning they don't actually have to go and pitch individual investors, but then they actually are becoming the investors themselves, which is kind of turning the whole model on their head. And they can invest in, in projects and in developers that are going to increase the value of their protocols or their or their company's ecosystems. Um, and that's a really interesting thing to see because these projects potentially can not only be uh, potential investment opportunities for traditional VCs, but they can also become co-investors. Um, and so that's, I think, in the very early stages. And we'll see how that um, that evolves because I think all of those are in the very early stages of kind of trying to figure out what their investment strategy is. Do you think that the whole kind of like ecosystem play uh, and for like investing for um, these crypto um, like like fundraisers that have like all this excess capital and they're like, well, we want to build out this ecosystem. The most obvious way is to pay developers to build on top of our things. How mm-hmm. do you think these ecosystems differ from the ecosystem funds that have existed in the past for like Facebook and like the Slack fund and yada, 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 where they would just take this pool of capital and then hope to inject it into developers to like build more value. Like how does that differ in crypto versus traditional investment? I think it's actually really similar in a lot of ways. So you've seen, I think the Slack fund, you know, Facebook having a developer ecosystem, also uh, just corporate venture arms, like this isn't necessarily new. And so these projects are still figuring out what their goals are, what their decision-making processes are. And I think they're all going to be different from one another. I don't think that there's going to be a standard way, but they can look to traditional models like corporate VC arms. Um, They can look to the Slack fund and uh, and the Alexa fund and other traditional tech companies that have done similar type of uh, investing models before and learn from them, learn what worked and what didn't, and then what's going to be unique to crypto. But I think um, one thing is that it's probably going to be more global than past uh, corporate venture initiatives, which I think tended to be more focused on domestic investments. Um, so that's one thing. And then I think another thing is that um, the the corporate venture model tended to be more investments in uh, traditional equity. So investing in companies and then having kind of long lockup periods that illiquidity. Yeah, waiting years to find liquidity versus like being able to do that in the short term and not have to like bet your business on like a short-term crypto company. Right. And then the other interesting thing is seeing that they could potentially increase the value of their own token by investing in these projects they're building on the protocol. So in, in a corporate venture model, you didn't really see that. You wouldn't see like GE Ventures, you know, giving their... Uh, getting an increase in their stock because they invested in a company that was potentially increasing the value of the company in the same way that you'll probably see that baked in pretty quickly in the crypto world. Yeah, I actually have a follow-up question to that. So uh, when I interviewed you for the bit, I asked you um, how hard is it to get these funds to ultimately invest in the cryptocurrency space? And I remember you saying um, when you start throwing something into the mix that's unexpected for traditional VCs, there needs to be obviously a bigger conversation with investors. Uh, So my follow-up question to that is – how soon do you think, I guess, endowments for specialized crypto fund managers uh, will come up in the industry or has you have you already seen it come up? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So just for those that don't have background on kind of traditional, how traditional venture firms work. So traditional venture firms are raising capital from limited partners. Limited partners can be institutional investors, including endowments, pension plans. Um, They can also raise from family offices, high net worth individuals. And so the general partners of venture capital firms are fiduciaries for that capital, and they're investing on behalf of those limited partners. So uh, Erica, your question was, how soon do do I think those institutional investors will gain comfort with the crypto space and start making investments into funds? Uh, So I think one, it's already happening to some extent. And I know that some institutional investors have made small investments into crypto funds. Uh, not specifically endowments or pension plans. I think that there's a spectrum of, in terms of uh, risk-averse and risk-seeking limited partner prospects. And so I imagine that the crypto funds are mostly finding success with high net worth individuals, family offices, and potentially seed uh, seeder programs with institutional investors where they're expected or um, able to take a little bit more risk. But I don't think that that's necessarily going to be universal. Um that being said, institutional investors are definitely keeping an eye on this space and I think will start allocating a part of their portfolio into those type of types of investments uh, and and either through investing in crypto hedge funds, investing in crypto venture funds, investing in traditional venture funds that have exposure to crypto assets or companies that are doing crypto projects. Um, so they are getting some exposure. I think it varies a lot depending on kind of the mandate and the um, risk appetite of the institutional investor. But I think 2017 was definitely a year where institutional investors' interest was peaked and they started having conversations with in, with managers that were investing or had some exposure to crypto. Yeah, I can yeah. already say from, from personal experience here in the Bay Area, at least in Silicon Valley, that, you know, obviously you're seeing interest across the board from institutions, um, traditional Silicon Valley, VCs, hedges, um, that, you know, have it into flexibility within their LPA to be able to invest into these different, um, into these different funds, into these different um, uh, assets. Uh, but one of the main hindrances um, thus far uh, for institutions and maybe like larger endowments, say like universities, things like that, usually has to do with the custodial aspects mm-hmm. of this. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of it is there's not a lot of clear and concise methodology to one store securely um, from a technical standpoint, like these assets, but also like if you're just going to say like, oh, I'm this institution, we want to invest into Ethereum or we want to invest into Bitcoin for every single asset and Monero, Zcash, uh, whatever have you, you have to have a custodial setup and a cold storage or a multi-sig solution to store those assets like legally, compliantly, uh, excuse me, in a compliant manner. Um, for across every single asset that you could possibly be interested in. And right now, um, from a custodial aspect, that technology is just now like getting to the point where like the UI, the UX of it is is simple to the point where um, like hardcore, like crypto people, Bitcoin, you know, uh, people who are familiar with like Bitcoin scripting and like multi-sig, people that are familiar with uh, 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 secure multi-sig contracts on Ethereum are getting around to like building these solutions. Um, and 2018 is, in my opinion, the year where a lot of these solutions will become um, kind of like more mainstream. And when we see that happening, we'll see a lot more money come into the space a lot more quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for entrepreneurs that are working on solving that problem, there is a huge market for it. So I think right now what you're what you're seeing is crypto de- dedicated crypto funds are developing homegrown solutions. And that's yep. just really inefficient for all of these 
individual funds to be developing their own security protocols and um, custodian solutions. And I know that some traditional custodians from the uh, from traditional finance are starting to look at the space. And I think that they, there will be support for at least the largest uh, crypto assets and the ones that everyone knows about. But I think that still leaves question into that. That's still there's still going to be a question mark around how it's handled for some of the staffs that these funds invested in in 2017. When those tokens actually launch, is there going to be a solution to handle those tokens. I think there's there's a lot yeah. of questions around the token distribution for some of yeah. the investments that were made in 2017. And a lot of people are kicking that can down the road and kind of hoping <laughs> that it gets figured out by the time that <laughs> the protocols launch. Yeah, we're, we're, so I think you think that's no, we're, we're, I, one I, of the people one of the people working on this, right? So so if you go to tokenstandards.com, um uh, our fund Amentum and another company called Tokensoft, tokensoft.io um, working on partnering together on a joint like cold storage solution for um, Bitcoin and Ethereum and ERC-20 tokens. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like a secure multi-sig uh, uh, methodology to, you know, have your keys, you know, uh, split responsibility up accordingly, have it done via a mobile app, have a desktop application that's being run on uh, a, a laptop that hasn't been connected to the internet, one that's like secure. And basically it's this multi-step process to secure these different assets. Um, but uh, that said, it's only like, and we're we're way ahead of the game on as far as everyone, and we're going to be open sourcing these tools um, to the industry as a whole. So we have our, our crypto fund working group, and this is one of the first initiatives that came out of that. Um, but even then, it's still only for um, Bitcoin and Ethereum. And that mm-hmm. said, um, to add support for things assets like Litecoin or Zcash is is simple, but not necessarily completely non trivial. Um, given that their code bases are similar to Bitcoin, but that still these other assets like Monero and um, uh, uh, other other assets like say like EOS or something like that, like once it's no longer an ERC twenty asset, um, like there's just you have to like actively like get around to this. And not only that, you literally have to be working with these investors, the developers themselves, but also the engineers that are going to be building the support for holding these assets. Because if you build it, they're just holding bags of money and they've got nowhere to store it. It almost sounds mm-hmm. like uh, you're addressing the reality we live in that like some people don't want to be that responsible and maintain their own private keys and their own private key security. They're okay with having someone be the custodian of that. So I think that is true. To, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it just is. It's that's what that Coinbase we, is doing, right? Coinbase saw the writing on the wall and they were like, they started their Coinbase custodian, Coinbase custodial, I believe, something like that. Uh, yep. Where they're literally like, yeah, like we'll hold all your goodies, just give them to us, and we'll charge you this like exorbitant like fee in order <laughs> to do. Uh, and like, there's a business model there, of course, right? Um, for especially for institutions and stuff like that that want to get in now early before those tools are available. Um, so you know that might be beneficial. Uh, but uh, but yeah, so so let's 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 sort of like take the conversation uh, a, a step back real quick and talk about um, maybe how traditional VC investment. Um, parallels with like traditional crypto investment. Um, maybe, maybe Lisa, you can maybe start to lead the conversation on kind of like what are what are some similarities that you see between like traditional investment and crypto that you think uh, maybe traditional venture style investors take that a crypto should continue to adopt, and maybe like vice versa. Maybe that should be the next core of the discussion. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think I think a really interesting question, which 
for me as not a traditional investor such as Lisa or even yourself, Steven, like I'm just an individual investor into cryptocurrency. Um, but why don't traditional invest investors really want to invest? Cause there's many that don't. Is it because, uh, the deals are structured differently? Is it because of the volatility? I think that would be a really interesting perspective for people to learn. Well, yeah, wants I'll to go to first. I'll start on the due diligence question because I think there's okay. actually a lot of really similar parallel. There's a lot of parallels between the way that traditional VCs think about investing in companies and the way that crypto funds think about investing in projects. And I think when you're looking at very, very early stage investments, one of the first things and most important things is who's around the table. So what what's the team's background and why are they well positioned to develop the thing that they want to develop? And so You'll look into things like how have they developed things before? Have they started a company before? Have they solved this a similar problem or have industry contacts that will allow them to actually get some momentum on the platform or solidify partnerships? I think you look at who they've been able to recruit as advisors and investors and people that will be able to help the project get off the ground and get some uh, credibility in the market. And so I think team is one thing that's consistent across venture and crypto investments. Who, who, is the, who is the team that's actually going to be developing the project and why are they in a unique position that they will be able to create something that's the best thing in the market um, or be able to recruit a community around them that will help the ecosystem flourish. Um, so that's, that's one thing. I think the other thing is why is this being developed? So is what is the need? Who's going to use it? How big is that market? And is this the right time for it? So I think a lot of projects that I've heard about just seem a little bit too early uh, in in the cycle, I think, to really get to scale. Um, so the uh, the comparison that I make is a lot of the a lot of the companies that failed in like the early '90s or the late 90s, early 2000s, were just slightly ahead of their time. And now we'll see similar companies getting off the ground and getting to scale because we have the infrastructure in place or new technologies or more people are just open to using these services. So an example of that is WebVan. And that's basically, you know, Instacart today and Pets.com of 1999 is Chewy.com of today. And so you'll see Mm -hmm. these companies that failed in the 90s because we had such a smaller number of people using the internet are feeling comfortable buying things online. And now these business models are able to get to scale because of the um, kind of social acceptance of, of, Mm -hmm. of doing these things online. Um, But one thing I think that's pretty unique is the investment horizon. And we talked about this a little bit before, but in traditional Mm -hmm. venture, illiquidity is a feature and not a bug. And I think (laughs) that's awful. And I'm sorry to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 I mean, it's true, right? Like the way that we structure the deals is these long-term investments where you're aligned with the team and you are working in trenches, serving on boards, helping the company get off the ground, get to that next stage of financing. And so the early stage investors are in it for the long haul. They could be in the investment for five, seven, 10, sometimes longer, uh, 10 years. And so in crypto, long term is like six months or something. Like it's just, I remember hearing a crypto investor say like, yeah, we're long-term investors. We are willing to hold 
uh, we're willing to hold our position for six months. And I was like, that is not long term. Like, that just blows my mind. Yeah, we might hold it through the summer or maybe up till Christmas, but that's a little bit too long for us. How, how generous of you. But, I mean, to be fair, this, this space is evolving so quickly that that actually might make a lot more sense in a way that it doesn't necessarily make sense in venture. And so seeing that and getting used to that is, like, definitely a bit of a mind shift for traditional venture investors that are trying to come into the space, they're not used to holding liquid assets, right? They're used to holding long positions. They, you know, one day hopefully get to either an acquisition or an IPO. And then if they get to an IPO, they have to make a decision about when to sell. And usually there's um, agreements in place with their investors about how that will be handled. And that hasn't been built out for the crypto space. So if a traditional venture firm decides to invest in a project and then they get tokens, do they then give those tokens immediately to the limited partners so those limited partners can decide what to do with them. Do they sell them immediately regardless of how the market reacts? Do they wait a week? Do they wait a couple of months? Like what are, what's the expectation? And so I think as those projects launch and tokens are distributed, those decisions will have to be made. And I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation to see limited partners and general partners trying to figure that out together. Yeah. So, I mean, basically to kind of recap everything Lisa's saying is just like, from a regulatory standpoint, from a technical due diligence standpoint, just from traditional market standpoint, things just differ so much more than the traditional um, uh, uh, investment um, industry. And and one of the one of the key uh, kind of just a clear example of that is you could raise money through like a fund and like not deploy capital for like a year. Like you could be taking all this time to be like building your pipeline, doing your due diligence, doing all this sort of stuff. Um, and then before you finally find like a group of projects that you're going to invest in. And only then at that point, you're committed and locked up anywhere between like five years to a decade before you have a liquidity event where you're actually going to be able to like, you know, recoup or, you know, kind of, you know, make a determination of whether or not you had a loss or a gain. Like that's a that's a whole different ballgame for people. And whereas in, in crypto, you could raise a fund get a few million dollars and start deploying capital within the next like couple of weeks until like a basket of different projects or two, or, you know, uh, investing into, uh, you know, a diverse like like basket of like different like cryptocurrencies. It's just, it's this fast moving like industry where the industry moves fast, the technology moves fast, the developers move fast and the, the traditional crypto native investors move even faster. So it's it's a lot to swallow at one time. And then again, on top of that, you've got like the custodial aspect of that stuff too. You've got like the re the regulatory uncertainty where there's a new ruling that comes out every day that has your, your lawyers scratching their head as to whether or not what you're even doing today is even going to be legally viable the next week, right? Like that's like that, it takes a lot of, uh, takes a lot of gusto uh, to kind of like come into the space and want to and wanna like, like capitalize on that like accordingly. And I think that's why we're we're finding like a lot of like more of, of the younger style, like, you know, tr tr traditional investors that maybe like come into the space in the past like four or five years, really taking the foothold and kind of running with everything because they're not they're not ingrained into the traditional like investment kind of like lifestyle. And, and, and so like they're like wide open to like moving fast and and, and things progressing like very quickly, um, like historically from their like particular generation. So I think what we'll see is. Uh, continue to see uh, a lot of the um, the younger investors continue to kind of like guide um, more of the traditional um, institutional and like Wall Street related investors. And as as we build things out and continue to make things more stable, um, they'll flood in um, accordingly as soon as we figure out all the hard stuff. <laughs> <in> my... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
soon as we figure all that stuff out. So for me, I guess uh, I'm not. I guess I'm the super layman in this whole conversation about venture capital and investing and whatnot. I'm just your typical E Trade slash GDAX guy. But like, what for an investor, it seems almost counterintuitive because you want to invest in something because you want to make money off of it. But what if you also invest in it because you think it's going to be a big deal? So if you're an investor, making money seems to be the goal. Oh, I got a return on my investment of whatever percent. If you cash out, for lack of a better term, at that time, aren't you cutting the rug? Aren't you like pulling the rug out from underneath the project that you invested in? So they're going to end up not being able to fulfill what they set out to do because you know the token or whatever it is bottoms out. Like, so are you saying like if you're like an uh, 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 like an early investor and you have like a large stake? And then you hold the asset for maybe like three to six months. And then one day you just dump it all together. Like yeah. uh, what you're saying, it's like, does that mean you're like no longer interested in the project at all? Yeah, and so yeah, technically that's actually, that's, good that's something that has happened, right? With some of these larger firms, like um, not to call anyone out in particular, um, but like Polychain and a few others where they'll come in, they'll have like a large allocation, some discounted percentage. Mm-hmm. Name. They'll have that asset accumulate it, and then like once once the asset is liquid, they'll you know dump a large portion of it, or if not all of their stake. And so that's where it comes to a question of strategy at that point, where it's just like if you know you're investing into a basket of um, digital assets that either serve as like infrastructure or like core staple components to the industry going forward. If you were to remove, say, like your your original principal investment, like off the table. Of, of that, of what's left over, uh, which is like, you know, profit and your gain, how much do you keep into that, that asset or do you just sell it all, like wash your hands, you know, mm-hmm. rinse, repeat, and then have more liquidity to invest into the next big project? And that's the decision that a lot of these um, other hybrid, quote unquote, crypto hedge funds are going to have to start making determination identity wise is am I an am I a long-term advocate investor? Am I serving on the advisory boards of these companies that I have like a lot of faith in? Like am I uh, uh, you know am I attending these events and like working alongside these companies? Like a great example of this is uh, Linda Z, who is an advisor for Zero X Protocol, and she's also has Scalar Capital. Like you know you see her you know investing into you know different projects, but also like being into the in the trenches of the projects that she's working on. She was at East Denver with the team. Um, you know, working with them as they're at like the hackathon, um, you know, she continues to serve on the advisory board as an advocate for the, like, cause like, it's like, she feels that that's going to be a stable piece of infrastructure going forward in the space. And I think that the best investors are going to continue to take approaches like that, um, yeah. where they're like, they're, where they're dud- like doubly, um, in- entrenched into the project, um, more, not just monetarily, but also like philosophically and career I'm interested. Well, I, so I think that that's a really, really great observation and investors over time build their reputation. And so I think as long as the expectations are managed upfront about how that will be handled, it'll be okay. So what I mean is if entrepreneurs take capital from an investor, knowing that they're going to sell their allocation as soon as it becomes liquid and the entrepreneur is okay with that, then that, then I think it's okay. Right. Because at least their expectations have been managed up front. I think if you go into it expecting that an investor is going to be in a position for a long time and then that's not the case, then that will get around. Entrepreneurs talk about their investors, investors talk about other investors, 
I think if you are an investor, you should keep that in mind when you're deciding how to execute on your strategy. And as long as you're being clear about what your intentions are, then uh, I think I think you'll it'll it'll be okay and it'll work out. But if you're saying one thing and then doing another, like selling out on a project that you said that you were going to be in long term, and you the management team was kind of relying on that then you'll find that that's probably not going to work out for you in the long run because um, other entrepreneurs will be wary if they see that you've done that to other entrepreneurs to take capital from you in the future. So um, I think Mm. you're right that it's going to be figured out on like a a fund by fund basis in terms of like what their strategy is. But I think that um, if you see as a developer that, you know, an investor who was meant to be a long-term investor sold out of a position, that's a really bad signal. And that might determine whether or not you decide to allocate your time and resources into that project. You might instead decide to do something else because, you know, you saw that the investor lost faith. So like, why would you want to develop? They obviously have some insider information that you don't have because they, if they wanted to hold on long-term, that would be obviously a positive signal that they think that that project has potential and then it might be worth your time. Um, So I think investors should just be aware of how their, uh, investments can kind of help a project either succeed or fail uh, as as they think about, you know, what their position should be in the project long term. All based cool. down the strategy. I like it. Um, I guess following that, what have you ultimately experienced that's been helpful so far working in both industries as an investor? Um, just lessons you've learned in general. So one of my one of our uh, limited partners asked, uh, you know, you're relatively new to New York. You're relatively new. Uh, your fund is relatively new. How are you going to make a name for yourself in kind of a really crowded and um, uh, you know crowded market? And so what I said was, I think there's a lot of opportunity because I'm hanging out where where a lot of VCs are not hanging out. And what I mean by that is. I'm going to developer meetups. I'm going to um, kind of regular meetings with either different teams or different investors that are working on things that traditional VCs are kind of overlooking in some ways. Um, So that's a really interesting learning because uh, there's a lot of opportunity to bridge the gap between traditional VCs and crypto investors. Um, And I think this has kind of been the theme of the entire conversation, but like you don't necessarily need to reinvent the wheel because a lot of the things that VCs have done over time have been for specific reasons. Like they figured these things out. And so um, people that are getting into the crypto space and investing in projects, they should learn from the things that have worked on the traditional venture side. And so one of the things that I've done in New York is started to host monthly breakfasts with traditional VCs and bringing in a crypto uh, investor who's like full-time crypto to share kind of how things are evolving, what they're learning, what their strategy is, how they're um, how they're navigating some of the challenges that we've talked about on the phone today. Um, so that's been a really cool uh, opportunity to build this community of people on the traditional venture side that are interested in getting their funds into the crypto space and talking through like, okay, why are, what are some of the things that might um, make general partners weary to get into the space? How are we thinking about things like regulation and working with our lawyers to kind of figure out these these problems that we haven't necessarily had to deal with in our traditional venture investments. Um, so I think it's a really exciting time. I think, you know, our LPs for traditional venture funds expect us to keep up with everything that's going on in 
the startup ecosystem. And it would be really hard to overlook this just because of how much mind share it's taken and how much uh, it's grown in the past year. And so I think it's kind of like our responsibility as traditional venture investors, even if we're not making investments into tokens or protocols to at least know what's going on so that we can see uh, how the space is evolving and how, what our fund strategy should be and what, whether or not we need to adapt as, as the ecosystem grows. Yeah. And coming from experience, I just moved to New York about three weeks ago and Lisa has introduced me to this huge community of crypto people. And um, it's quite amazing just because she's just always involved in it. Um, and one of the stories that I definitely want you to elaborate on is how you encourage more women to get into the space. One of my favorite topics. Um, <laughs> so as many people know, the crypto space is pretty male dominated. Uh, the first uh, crypto event that I went to, I walked into the room knowing very few people and quickly realized that I was one of maybe five women in the room out of like a hundred people. And I think that that's the gender breakdown in a lot of rooms uh, and a lot of conferences uh, in the crypto space. So I'm very conscientious of changing that and the way that I think is most effective is to one, just invite more women to these events and like share your excitement and why you think it's interesting. Um, but also trying to figure out what specifically would interest that particular person. And I think that's true, whether it's a guy or a girl. Um, so what is that person working on and how does it relate to the crypto space? Cause I think there are so many different elements and layers of the crypto space that there's something for everyone. And so if the person's interested in behavioral economics, or they're interested in marketing, or they're interested in globalization or political structures, like you can find a way to relate crypto and what's happening in the crypto mm -hmm. space to whatever anyone is interested in, regardless of gender. And so um, one time I went to a meetup and I met this woman who came with her husband and she was just like, you know, kind of there because she wanted to be supportive of him, but was like, I don't know anything about the space. I don't really care about the space. And I was like, well, what do you do? Like, what's your story? And she was getting a PhD in behavioral economics. And I was like, are you kidding? Like your skill set. You're like the so perfect down. person for this. What are you doing? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then by the end, by the end, we like exchange contact information. I've seen her at future meetups and it's been awesome. But like, I think because her husband was interested more in the trading side, that's what she heard about all the time. She was hearing about like what his strategy was in order to like make money. And that didn't necessarily appeal to her. But when she heard about how, the entire uh, how the ecosystem was working and like how these different projects are launching and how they're incentivizing people. She was like, Oh my God, this is my, this is what I do every day. And so <laughs> I think just asking those questions, like, what do you care about? And then trying to figure out what aspect of crypto would relate to what they care about. That's a really great way to get people interested. Um, so yes, Erica, it's a huge, it's a huge <laughs> interest area for me. Um, I think if any, women are interested and in New York, I'm happy to share some events that I go to. I'm uh, always thinking about it. And I think uh, also bringing it up and having that conversation with the people I am friends with about like inviting more women or getting more women to speak on panels or attend conferences. That's uh, a way to, you know, get them more visibility and just show that there, there are women that are working on interesting things in this space and that there should be more women coming into the space. It's, it's, I think, everyone has been super friendly and warm and, and willing to share kind of their learnings and their deal flow and whatever it is. And so 
I think in order to make the uh, ecosystem grow even faster, we should get more women into the space so that we can make sure that we're solving the gender disparity issue from the ground floor as opposed to trying to fix it kind of years down the line as we're seeing in traditional tech. Yes, claps, 100% agree. Um, <laughs> and the community here is just so friendly and you're right with that. Like, it's just amazing. It blows me away every single time I go to hang out with uh, people involved in this space. Blows my mind. Well, you guys make this uh, New York crypto scene sound very inviting. I'm going to have to have a good time when I come up there and see and see all this stuff. Um, so, <laughs> so what do you, uh, I guess, I guess that's the best way um, kind of to close this out um, at this point would be um, like, are there any like kind of like last like thoughts or anything that you've been kind of just like kind of like thinking on in regards to the crypto space that you want to like put out there for our listeners to chew on uh, maybe even if it's relation to like investing regulatory stuff like where the space is going what's some just what's some general advice that we can leave before we scoot out of here i think that sometimes it feels like the space is moving a little too quickly mm-hmm. and i would encourage people to be more thoughtful about the long term so that the credibility of the space isn't uh, questioned. I think, you know, in the last couple of weeks, we've been seeing a lot of uh, regulators kind of starting to take action, starting to come out with more clear guidance, starting to ask more questions. And I think I would encourage everyone to just keep in mind kind of the long-term opportunity that's here and not try to uh, optimize for now and try to build long-term reputations and long-term relationships so that the entire ecosystem can grow. Um, So that's one thing I would just try to encourage uh, encourage with people. Perfect. It's like the perfect answer. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Everybody thinks it's it's going to happen overnight. It's like, come on, guys. Like, let's... Let's be a little bit more mature about it. So, so, to, so to put it so, so to put it succinctly, pump your brakes, chill out, <laughs> and focus on the future a little bit more innately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's perfect. That's all perfect. right. Well, well, thank you, thank you so much, um, Lisa, for all the all the insights that you're providing us today. It's great to be able to see in perspective from somebody coming from the uh, traditional uh, investment side and kind of like how they're viewing the other uh, space as it grows and. Uh, you know, I appreciate your thoughts on uh, telling everyone to like, kind of just like chill. Things are moving quickly. Um, let's, let's make sure we're being pragmatic as we're moving forward. And I think that's kind of the, it's kind of like the best like kind of statement to say when there's like so much exuberance um, kind of mm-hmm. going about. Everyone is just like, whoa, like, you know, we're all like very excited, but let's not make sure, uh, let's make sure we don't get ahead of ourselves. And also thank you to Erica um, for, for her very first co-host position here on Blockchain. I think she killed it. Uh, really proud of you. Hopefully we can have you back in the future for um, some more great interviews. Um, of but course. Again, thank you so much, Lisa, for your time. Um, we will, uh, is there, are there any kind of like maybe links or any uh, kind of shout outs of anything you want us to put in our show notes uh, in regards to either like um, NextGen or um, maybe you have a Twitter account. Is there anything you want us to share with the audience? Sure. Yeah. My Twitter account is just Lisa Cuesta. I would say <laughs> sign up for the bit daily. <laughs> my good friend Eric. Yeah, I agree with there. The bitdaily.com. <laughs> sign up for that newsletter. Plug in. And, <laughs> yeah. and any right. entrepreneurs that are interested in learning more about NextGen, please reach out. Uh, you can reach me at lisa at nextgenbp.com. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much, Lisa. You have a great rest of your day. You as well, Erica. 
Um, and we will have this out soon. And thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you. This episode of Block Channel was sponsored by Bitcoin Cash. If you love Bitcoin, you're going to love Bitcoin Cash. Bitcoin Cash is a hard fork of the original Bitcoin legacy chain and features an 8 megabyte block size and a flexible difficulty adjustment algorithm that enables it to more easily handle large fluctuations in the network hash rate. Bitcoin Cash was created and quickly adopted due to its potential to provide a sound store of value and medium of exchange while still enjoying low network transaction fees and security of SHA-256 proof of work. If you're interested, check out BitcoinCash.org to learn more about how this asset can help you and how you can start using it for buying goods and services today. Ooh, oh, 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 yeah. I don't know friends for me.